The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. All right, let's open in prayer and we'll walk through it. Lord, thank you for this, uh, this afternoon, time to be together with brothers and sisters and uh, a chance to walk through these incredible verses. And I pray that you would guide us, uh, help us to come to a healthy assurance of our own salvation and a confidence in fighting sin uh, through the power of the Spirit. I pray that all that the Holy Spirit intended by giving us this glorious book of Romans uh, would come to fruition in our lives. Um, and that you would help me uh, just as a teacher tonight, a teacher of the word, uh, to be helpful and beneficial to my brothers and sisters. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I cut out a lot of introductory material out of the handout, and I just want to jump into basically where we're at. Um, I usually don't like to do this. I usually like to give some kind of a, a run-up to um, you know what we're doing. Uh, Romans 6 through 8, those three chapters are sanctification chapters. Having been justified by faith, what should we do about the sin we see in our lives? And Romans 6, 7, and 8 is the, uh, the Bible's answer to that uh, as we've walked through. And we're midway through the final of those three chapters, uh, Romans um, chapter 8. So I would love it. Last week, we uh, took a break from just walking through Romans and did John Owen on mortification of the flesh, uh, Romans 8, 13, and 14. But today, I want to uh, take a, uh, a run-up at Romans 8, um, 12 through 17 and just continue to walk through the chapter. So could someone read for us Romans 8, 12 through 17, and we'll begin tonight. All right, so in this section, um, the center of, of this, uh, just according to the label I gave you, is the concept of our adoption as children of God. And so we saw in verse 14, those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So if you are led by the Spirit of God into a lifestyle of mortification of the deeds of the flesh, putting sin to death by the Spirit, that is a great evidence that you have been adopted as a child of God. Only children of God fight sin by the Spirit. And so it is by the leadership of the Spirit, and the leadership of the Spirit in verse 14 is specifically leadership into mortification, specifically leadership into sanctification, putting sin to death. The Spirit leads other ways. Uh, you see this in uh, Acts 16, for example, as Paul and Silas and their missionary team were, were looking for leadership from the Spirit on where to go next with the, with the gospel, with the gospel uh, message. And they were blocked from going into the province of Asia. And they were blocked in this way, blocked in that way, didn't know which way to go. And then Paul had a vision of the man of Macedonia saying, come over and help us. And so they concluded that God was calling them uh, to go westward toward Europe and toward Greece. And so they went. That was the spirit leading in terms of missionary strategy. This is a different kind of leading. This is the leading that the spirit does toward mortification. But if you are being led by the spirit to mortify the deeds of the flesh, you are a child of God. If the Spirit is not mortifying sin in you, you're not a child of God. It's black or white, it's binary, it's, it's either true or false. So, but this section here in general then expands to talk about that issue of being a son of God or a child of God. Verse 15, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And then verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we are children, verse 17, then we're heirs of God. 
Um, so Paul desires to show us the absolute security that we have, we should have, as adopted children of God. This is a matter of security. As we're battling sin, we can sometimes wonder, am I really born again? Am I really a child of God? I mean, sin can get the upper hand sometimes. We can struggle. You get to the point where Paul says in Romans 7, what a wretched man I am. And you feel pretty wretched. You're like, the very thing I hate, I do. The thing I want to do, I don't do. You know, is it all real? Am I a child of God or not? And so Paul's laboring throughout Romans 8 to give us assurance, to give us a sense of security. Jesus spoke of this security in John 8, 35. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. We are not on probation, okay? Imagine how terrifying that would be. Imagine if the Lord said, I'm gonna give you five years to get these sin problems dealt with. We'll see how it goes. I mean, how would you feel about that? What would that, what would that lead to? What kind of life would that be? If you were on probation and the whole thing were based on mortification, how would that make you feel? All right, anxious, putting it gently, okay. Very insecure. Do you think that that might be what Paul means when he says a slave again to fear? Do you think there would be a fear factor there if we were on probation? If everything were based on, you know, how well we put sound? I think it definitely would. Um, so let me ask the question. How should our security as adopted children of God help us in sanctification? How should security, saying, I know I am, I am an adopted child, I've, I'm, I've got a permanent place in the family of God, how would that help us in sanctification? How does a sense of security help you fight sin? Okay, so just out of sheer gratitude, and that changes everything. If you're saying to God, I know I am your child, no matter how I do with sin today, but I'm fighting sin, I'm fighting it every moment, I'm not trying to earn your favor by my achievement, I'm not trying to do it by works here, I know that I'm forgiven, and here I am fighting. It glorifies God. You're doing, as you said, out of a delight, a sense of delight and, and pleasure, a sense of security. So the Lord wants us to have that security as adopted children of God. Also, doesn't it give us resilience? How would that factor in, the idea of resilience in our battle against sin? Yeah, you're gonna have some good days and some bad days. The number one weapon Satan has in reference to us, both in terms of the internal journey of holiness and the external journey of gospel advance through missions and evangelism is discouragement, despair. All right, why would I say that? Why would despair be such a powerful weapon for Satan in both the internal journey of holiness, external journey of gospel advance? Despair. Just give up. Do you think Satan would want to whisper that in your ear? Look, there's no point in fighting. Sooner or later, you're just going to cave in, right? He's really lying to you, telling you you're ultimately going to go back to being a slave to sin. So why even fight? It's such a lie. But if you know I am going to win, uh, where I'm, I'm going to win, I'm going to, I'm going to put my feet on the neck of all of my lusts in the end. I'm going, to be, I'm going to still be standing when they're all thrown in the lake of fire. Now that gives you resilience, right? You might have a bad Wednesday, but you can have a good Thursday, right? It gives you, it gives you that staying power. So yeah, resilience as opposed to despair. I think despair is one of the number one weapons. Like why even fight? Why put on the spiritual armor? Why even try? Why, why battle my lusts? Why battle my habits? I'm just going to give in anyway, right? That's just Satan's talk. Say, no, it's not true. I'm set free from sin. I can fight. Yes, I had a bad Tuesday or a bad Wednesday, but God's mercies are new every day. I am renewed in strength today. I'm going to fight. I'm going to fight because I'm secure. I know I'm a child. I'm not trying to earn my way into his favor. 
So our adoption gives us security. John wrote of our privileges of adoption uh, in John 1, 12 and 13, to all who did receive him being Christ, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, or the will of man, but of God. Born again by the Spirit, made alive by the Spirit. So this is not that old liberalism thing, which is uh, fatherhood of God, brotherhood of man. We're all, all children of God. We're not. We're not all children of God. As a matter of fact, Jesus said uh, to the unbelieving Jews who are hostile and fighting him, said, you're of your father, the devil. You're not children of God, you're children of the devil. And so that it's, it's not true that every single human is a child of God in this sense. We're created by God, um, but we're not all children of God. This is a privilege. It's a right that's given to us through faith in Christ to become a child of God. And then once we have been born again, we have received the gift of the Holy Spirit, the spirit of adoption. The indwelling Holy Spirit is what he calls the spirit of adoption. And that's very different than a spirit of slavery to fear. Now, I think we already touched on this, but how could the battle against indwelling sin be characterized as an enslavement to fear? Or fear in a very sinful way, not the fear of the Lord that's the beginning of wisdom, but I mean a, a, a terrible Dark fear could actually characterize mortification, could characterize our entire, how would that, what would that look like? That kind of enslavement to fear. Just fear that you're going to be damned in the end, you're going to lose, your sins will win. You'll fight and fight, you know, but in the end they'll overcome you. I, I mentioned this last week, I, I see this in Martin Luther before his conversion, before he understood the gospel. Uh, how did he battle his sins? And how do you see enslavement to fear in his life? Maybe you don't know much about what he did, but he uh, was in terror of, uh, of death. He was in terror of hell, and he decided to, uh, to enter a monastery. And what was his life like in the monastery? And what was his goal in the monastery? It's legalism, medieval, medieval Roman Catholic style, but yes. Staupitz, he's yeah, three or four times a day. Uh, he just never could do enough, could never could get enough. So he was doing works. Like what kind of works? What do you think monks did? Long hours praying, fasting, uh, manual labor, uh, you know, just various rituals the monks would do throughout the day, a very regimented life, uh, confessing sins to his father confessor. It was relentless. And it never ends. It's never enough. Um, and so that's what it could like. Now, that's their, that, their version, but um, our version might be other kinds of works, but you're just constantly enslaved. George Whitfield fasted so much his hands turned black before he was converted. Same thing. Uh, the, just the terror. Uh, he was in a group called the Holy Club, and this included John and Charles Wesley before they understood the grace of the gospel, before they understood genuine conversion. And so they're all trying to earn it. And, and if you genuinely are afraid of God and you're afraid of hell and, and you know that God sees everything you do, it's never enough. And so your conscience is, is driving you crazy. And so that's what it means to be enslaved to fear. But by the indwelling Holy Spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. And this speaks of a beautiful intimacy with God, also to our frailty and our weakness as if we are little children. For Paul said, when I'm weak, then I'm strong, right? And so we have this sense of, of um, being frail, weak, 
children who need the help of a mighty and a powerful father. Um, that's what Abba, Father, the Spirit cries out, Abba, Father. And the Spirit, then it says, testifies or bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. What does that mean? The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. By the Scripture, He illuminates the Scripture to us. Uh, one sense of this might be, if somebody could take a minute and look at Ephesians 3, and read 16 through uh, 21 for us. Ephesians 3, 16 to 21. Those are just some of the greatest verses in the Bible. And, and Paul's praying there for the Ephesian Christians that they would have power in their inner being by which Christ would be dwelling in their hearts through faith, a sense of closeness and intimacy with Christ, and that beyond that, they would uh, have power together with all the saints to grasp or comprehend how wide and long and high and deep, or what are the various dimensions of the love of God for us in Christ? How much Christ loves you, that this would be ministered directly to your heart so that, he says, you would be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. I mean, what do those words even mean? But there'd be a sense of the, of the, the infinite majesty of God and his love for us poured out into our hearts, and it's the Spirit that does that. So you would have a sense of the dimensions of Christ's love for you, beginning, I would say, with the cross, right? You meditate on the cross, his blood shed on the cross, and then you realize how much he loves you. And that's how the Spirit testifies with your spirit, that you are a child of God. Makes it personal. Another verse on this is Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me and the life he now, I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who, what? Loved me and gave himself for me. What's the significance of the me versus us there? He makes it personal. Jesus died for me. Is he saying he died only for me? No but he's saying he died for me. The Holy Spirit does that. He brings the blood of Christ to you personally. That's, I, that's what the Spirit does. The Father plans salvation, the Son executed on the cross, and the Spirit applies it to individuals. And the application is lifelong. It's your whole life. He is taking the blood and applying it to you again and again. You are forgiven. You're loved. You're secure. You're adopted. That's how the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we're children of God. I mean, the Spirit does all of this work. He tells you that God loves you, tells you that you're forgiven. He brings the peace of God to you, but he also brings deep, rich, powerful conviction of sin. I mean, and it feels good, actually. You're listening to a sermon and you know that you have been sinning in a certain area, but he does it in such a way that your position with him isn't, isn't insecure. He's just working on you. He's, he's bringing to light things you haven't seen before, and it feels good to be convicted because you know the Spirit's at work in your life. And it's a beautiful thing. So the Spirit's doing all of this. It's the Spirit's job to bring Christ's finished work on the cross to you personally and to get you home, to bring you home to, to heaven. And the Spirit's every bit as good at His job as Jesus was at His. He doesn't lose anybody. So it's the Spirit's job. He testifies that you're a child of God, testifies with your spirit that you're a child of God, um, and by this he ministers to you. Also, Paul says that we're heirs, heirs with Christ. There's a sense of an inheritance yet to come. If you're an heir, you're going to get this big inheritance that's coming. And it's, it's not just big, it's actually infinite. It's, it's just immeasurable, the amount of wealth that's going to come, that you would have power to know how rich 
is the inheritance in the saints. How rich is the kingdom, like the sheep and the goats. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. How big is that? That's your inheritance. So come now, you sheep, and take it. Now's the time. So what that means is you don't have it yet. But the Spirit is given as a deposit, an arabon is the Greek word, a, dep- a deposit, a down payment of that full inheritance, what I call the stipend check, all right? Stipend check, like your, your parents are, are multi-billionaires, but you're now an orphan at age 16, all right? Uh, you're not, however, destitute. When you're 21, I guess, you'll get $16.5 billion dollars. But you don't know what to do with that at age 16, and it's not wise, the state thinks, for you to get it yet. So um, you have to be cared for out of the estate. See what I'm saying? And so you will get monies needed, necessary, for the completion of your education, your daily provision, food, clothing, shelter, other things, and whatever other things. And you'll be living better than almost everyone in the country. All right, but it's still just stipend check, right? Stipend check. The full inheritance comes later. The Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing that full amount. You're getting a little bit, a small bit of your final inheritance. So in order to understand what that is, what is your final inheritance? It is a full, rich, complete experience of the glory of God in heaven, right? The Holy Spirit gives you a little of that now. Not all of it, because now we just see through as in a mirror dimly, right? Then face to face. That's the full inheritance. But the Holy Spirit ministers a little bit of heaven to you now. Heaven on earth, Thomas Brooks called it. A little bit of heaven now, that's assurance. And he ministers to this. So we have Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In him uh, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until uh, we acquire possession of it. Same thing in 2 Corinthians 1. Uh, He has given us his spirit as a guarantee. So that's the deposit. Um, So how, how does that help us in our battle against sin. How does that help us in sanctification, this idea of a deposit from the full inheritance? How does it help you if the Holy Spirit ministers some heaven to you now? Okay, gives us power. That's a taste of heaven, a taste of, again, Ephesians 3, a taste of how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And if you were to go to God and you were to say, I feel like my stipend check has been a little slim recently, would you increase it? What do you think he would say? Like how much foretaste of heaven could he give you now? Well, let me quote a scripture. I know a man in Christ 14 years ago, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know what God knows, who was caught up to paradise, caught up to the third heaven. You know what I'm talking about? He heard inexpressible things, things that man's not permitted to talk about. Well, that's the apostle Paul who got basically lifted up into the heavenly realms. And he's not the only one. Didn't John have that same experience in John 4? He saw a doorway standing open in heaven and he was lifted up into the heavenly realms to see God on his throne and the 24 elders around the throne. Remember all that? You're like, well, does God do that for like the ordinary Christian? Well, he's done some amazing kind of foretaste of heaven for some people. So, Could you imagine asking him for that? Say, would you please give me more of a foretaste of heaven than I've ever experienced before in my life? What do you think he would think of such a prayer? 
Disrespectful? Don't ask me. See what he does, you know? Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, what? Receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be open. What does it say after that, though? Which of you fathers, if his son asks for a fish, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for bread, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your, to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give, in Matthew's gospel, good gifts? But in Luke's gospel, the Holy Spirit. Wow. What does he mean, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? That, that's this, give of the Holy Spirit foretaste of heaven. Give from the Holy Spirit a sense of his love, his power, his peace, the fruit of the Spirit. That's, those are the good things, right? That's, those are the good gifts. So ask and it will be given to you. That's what he's saying. So anyway, this, uh, all of this is part of what the Holy Spirit does to minister to us. Paul says also that we're heirs with Christ. We stand to inherit a kingdom through him. Um, but we have to be willing to suffer with him. Um, we're heirs with him if we suffer with him. Part of the suffering that we do with Christ is the suffering of holiness, right? Mortification is hard. Mortification is painful. In context, that's some of the suffering. Remember how I've said in the past, there's two types of suffering that Christians experience that non-Christians don't. There is a suffering that both Christians and, and non-Christians experience alike, such as pain or disease or accidents or loss through natural disasters. We experience those things alike. But then there's uh, sufferings that are uniquely Christian, and they are the sufferings of mortification, of holiness, and the sufferings of, of gospel advance, of persecution as we preach the gospel. Those are Christian sufferings. If we join Jesus in his sufferings, we'll, we'll also join him in his, in his inheritance. That's what he's saying. So there has to be this suffering aspect with Christ. Um, so the life of this life of holiness is a constant war, and the existence of the war proves that the Spirit's in us. If you're mortifying, if you're fighting, it means the Spirit's in you. It's proof that you're adopted. That's, that's part of how you know I'm a child of God's because I'm fighting sin. Uh, what Jesus meant when he said, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Yeah, I think it's part of it. I think, I think when Jesus says that, I think it's the two sufferings of, of persecution for his kingdom and holiness. So I, that's how I would understand. All right, so uh, how, by the way, how is there suffering in sanctification? Why, why would there be suffering in sanctification? You know, the flesh is pushing hard. It's waging war against the spirit. And, and there's going to be suffering. We cannot expect painless resistance of temptation. And it says in Hebrews, Jesus suffered when he was tempted. So that's a clear link between suffering and temptation. It is hard. Um, all right, well, that, the context there is God's discipline of his children for sin. So what is that discipline? God scourges every son that he receives, it says in Hebrews 12. So what is that discipline? Right, that could happen. You could make bad choices and God will whack you. I mean, it does happen. And as a matter of fact, we have clear indication of this with the, uh, the sins against the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians where it says, for this very reason, a number of you are sick and some have fallen asleep. So could sickness be a discipline from the Lord? No doubt. Anything you find painful in this life, that's fair game for discipline. So that would be, but he doesn't do that to non-Christians. He doesn't discipline them for sin. There are natural consequences that they would have, but it's not discipline from a loving father. That's different. Does that make sense? So instead, he will bring misery into your life, whereas with the non-Christian, he'll give them over to their sin. They might actually become prosperous in it. 
See what I'm saying? But with us, he won't let that happen. And so that might be some of the suffering we have in sync. Yeah, I mean, you don't know. But I think it's always, what I've said is whenever you're going through something difficult, it's wise for a Christian to ask the Father, is this a discipline for sin? Just ask him. It may, may be, it may not be. In Job's case, it seems like it wasn't, all right? But in our case, it might be. How would you know? Well, I would suggest. If your conscience speaks up at that moment, right? Say, Lord, is there something in my life that's offensive to you? And something pops in your mind? What do you think? I would think that that's a good indication that you're being disciplined for sin. So if nothing pops in your mind, then you say, okay, I don't know of anything. I'm not aware. My conscience isn't bothering me right now. I'm just going through the suffering right now. And sometimes God does that as well. All right, let's move on to the next section. Present suffering in nature, but hope in future glory. Can someone read 18 through 25 off the sheet or your Bible? Romans 8, 18 through 25. So Paul links up verse 17 and 18 on the topic of suffering. Uh, suffering. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. All right? So what is the significance of that statement? The sufferings that we are enduring right now are not worth comparing with the, the glory that is coming. Right? Does it, I mean, seriously, when we're going through suffering, does it feel like it doesn't, it's not worth comparing? Does it feel like what Paul calls another place, light and momentary, 2 Corinthians 4, 17? It doesn't, but it is. It actually is. How is that helpful to know that it's not even worth comparing? The sufferings we go through aren't even worth comparing with the glory that's coming. Heightens heaven. Pondering that, it's not, it's, it's like nothing. It's like dust on the scales. Like, like Jim said, it's, it's just so small. Um, and it's, it's important for us to, to know that, that it's not even worth comparing. Now, I want to give you a translation note. Some of you have the ESV. Um, which strangely, I think, uh, and NAS does this too, I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. To us. Now, I believe a better translation, which some of the other translations have, is in us. Well, what's the difference? Glory that's, that's going to be revealed to us versus glory that's going to be revealed in us. In my heaven book, I said there's two aspects of our experience in the new Jerusalem, new heaven, new earth. We will see glory and be glory. So that might make it simpler. What's the difference between seeing glory and being glory? So do you, do you think that he's talking here about a kind of tour of beautiful world that we're going to experience or the fact that we ourselves will be radiantly beautiful and perfected? Which of those two seems more natural to the argument here? And it, the second, definitely. The point is not so much that we're going to a beautiful, glorious world. That is true. That's why the ESV said to us. But the context here is of the sons of God being revealed, right? That we're going to be revealed. And, and that uh, our bodies are going to be redeemed. So here's a verse that's in my mind big time, and that's Matthew 13, 43. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Now that's the righteous being glorious. See that? We are going to shine like the holy angels did. Remember the angel that announced the birth of Jesus to the shepherds? Remember? How would you characterize? What was the experience the shepherds had with that angel? Do you remember what happened? They're out there. It's middle of the night. They're watching the watching the sheep, and then suddenly an angel showed up, and they were terrified. Why were they terrified? 
the angel showed up and the glory of the Lord shone around him. So that means the angel was bright. Why would that be jarring to a bunch of shepherds out there in the middle of the night? Well, I mean, we're used, what's that? Pitch black. Pitch black. Back then, the only thing that would cause light in the middle of the night would be fire, right? And they're already sitting around a fire. All right, no, this was a different kind of light, much brighter, you know, brilliant, so overwhelming. In Daniel chapter 10, the glorious angel that showed up before Daniel, it was so glorious that Daniel was knocked to the ground and couldn't breathe. Couldn't breathe. So the fact is that we ourselves will be shining. We ourselves will be bright. We ourselves will be perfect. That's the point here. And so in the meantime, you're suffering, you're struggling with sin, you're battling indwelling sin. This is your deliverance. This is where you're heading. You're someday going to be radiantly beautiful, radiantly glorious. And so it's not even worth comparing. Um, it's working in us a, a weight of glory that far outweighs them all. So that's what he's talking about here. Um, we will be revealed. All right, so what does it mean that the sons of God are going to be revealed? Look at verse 19. For the creation waits in eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. All right, and then it, 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 it says it in verse 18, glory be revealed in us, but then the revealing. What does that mean, the revealing of the sons of God? The unveiling. It's like you imagine like a sculpture and he's done with his work, a masterpiece, right? And it's covered with a sheet. And the crowd comes and it's the big moment, right? And the artist pulls off the sheet and there it is. And it's spectacular, right? That's the sense you get of Revelation. It's the apocalypsis, the unveiling, the unveiling of the children of God. Revelation's the unveiling of Jesus, the revelation of Jesus. Here it's the unveiling of the revelation of the children of God. We're going to be revealed as glorious. And so I think you also get the sense of... Um, um, in someone, I'm sorry, I, I can't quote it right now, but 1 John 3, 1 through 3. So, man, I'll tell you what, that is a perfect verse for the whole revealing thing. We are children of God now, but what we will be hasn't yet been revealed. That's why the world doesn't know us. Imagine if we showed up and we were shining like the sun. All right, like I think the TSA agents would just let us through because we're, we're holy and we're like, oh, radiant, go on through. You're no threat to the plane. Or maybe you are, I don't know, but you know, there you are. But anyway, what could they do about it? But you know, there's just, you know, the world doesn't recognize us because we just look normal, just like Jesus looked normal. He didn't look like what he is, what he was. He didn't look radiantly glorious. And we're like that. The reason the world doesn't know us is it didn't know him. Now, what we will be has not yet been made known or been revealed, but... It says, when he appears, we will be what? Like him. Does that sound like Romans 8? That's exactly what it says. We're going to be conformed to Christ. We're going to be glorious like Jesus. So that is where we're heading. We're going to be revealed right now. We're not there. It does say in 1 John 3, 3, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself as he is pure. So we're back to sanctification again. When you know that someday you're going to be radiantly glorious, your attitude should be, I want to get rid of everything in my life that's not glorious. That's what purifies himself just as he is pure means. That's sanctification language, right? I'm going to get rid of everything from my life that's not radiantly glorious. I'm going to get rid of it all because someday I'm going to be perfect in Christ. That's the idea of the revealing of the sons of God. Um, and so we already answered that, that next question. Um, the section then speaks of the present physical creation. 
All right, the creation, verse 20, was subjected to futility or frustration or maybe vanity, right? Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Verse 21, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the children of God, the glory of the children of God. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So what is he talking about this, the creation? What is, what is, what do these verses teach us about the present creation? All right. So how is the present creation groaning and in bondage to decay? Human sickness is a picture of this. Like our, the fact that we age, we get sick, the fact that as marvelous as the human body is, there's still a, a specific disease that can attack it. What about just out in nature? Do you see the nature in bondage to decay and corruption? I mean, we just see it. And the nature around us is, and it's just beautiful, isn't it? But it's also messed up, both. And so we, we see that. Some of it is just direct interaction with sinful human beings, all right? I mean, the clearest I've ever seen of this, ever, was when we're flying away from a mission trip to Haiti. And we could see, we could literally see the border between Haiti and the Dominican Republic from the air because of deforestation. You could see the line, it was straight as a line. Haiti's a messed up place. It's a sad place. Dominican Republic is just a better place. And I'm just telling you, you can just see the line right there. And it's just so sad. But that's, that's the, it could have been a beautiful place, Haiti, but it's not. Just, and mostly because of human sin. It's just terrible. But it's not just that. There's just a general futility and decay in the physical creation, in, in nature. Um, I think Ecclesiastes captures it. Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 1, 2 through 8. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Generation uh, goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down, hastens back to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Round and round goes the wind. And on its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. Now, what a depressed dude that guy is. I, re I memorized Ecclesiastes in a different translation than this one. Memorized it, I was like getting so depressed. It's like everything's empty. There's no purpose. We don't ever get anywhere. And we know why, because of the curse on the ground because of Adam's sin. Remember that? Cursed is the ground because of you. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. We see that. The thorns and thistles are symbols of the curse. There is a link between the physical creation and the human race, specifically in our sin. There's a link between the two. And we see this absolutely, if you know what to look for, you see it in the book of Revelation, all right? You see it in the seven trumpet judgments, all right? For example, Revelation uh, 8, 7 through 12, the first angel sounded his trumpet and there came hail and fire mixed with blood and it was hurled down upon the earth. Look at what happened. A third of the earth was burned up. A third of the trees were burned up. And all the green grass was burned up. Now, let me just stop right there. Let's imagine for a moment. If you're going to say, well, this is symbolic language, I would immediately ask you, symbolic of what? 
What does that symbolize? Sounds kind of literal to me. So when I preached through Revelation, wherever I could be literal, I was going to stay literal. Is it reasonable that there be a connection between the trees and grass and human sin? That connection was made back in the Garden of Eden, wasn't it? Absolutely. All right, now let me just say, let's imagine for a moment that that actually literally happened. What effect would that have on the ecology of the earth if a third of the trees on the earth were burned up? Well, yeah, what would that even be like? I mean, you think about some of the wildfires that have happened in California in recent years or whatever. What percentage of the forest out there is burning, do you think? Do you have any idea? The largest, I looked this up, the largest forest fire in history was, I think, actually Minnesota, something like that. And I think you'll calculate the percent of the forest of that state that was burning at that point was 0.2%, something like that, some tiny percentage of the forest. And it was massive. It was very difficult to put out. What would 33% look like? And that's what's happening because a third of the earth, a third of the, a third of the ocean is going to turn to blood and, and a third of the living creatures are going to die. What would happen if a third of the living creatures in the ocean died? You get a feeling like at that point, earth is not going to last long. Well, guess what? It's not. That's why I say when you see these kind of ecological disasters at that level, you know the end is near. This is what it means by, you know, when you see the leaves coming out, whatever, you know the summer is near. When you see this kind of thing happen, you know nothing like this ever happened. And again, I challenge hermeneutically any kind of interpretation that says it's just symbolic. Symbolic of what? I just don't know what it would symbolize. It just makes sense that God's going to rip the earth to shreds right before the end of the world. Because there is a link between human sin and the ecology. Direct link. And you can read the rest of it there. A third of the drinking water was turned to blood, etc. So there's all that. By the way, stop right there. Imagine that. Imagine if a third of the drinking water on earth was no longer drinkable. Would that have any effect on national borders? Do you think people will go wherever there is drinking water? Will they care about guys with guns at the border? No, those guys will probably die. Or they'll be looking for water themselves. It's a, it's a massive reshuffling, reshuffling of the deck. And frankly, in my eschatology, I think that's probably some of what leads to the reign of the Antichrist worldwide. Because people are like, they're desperate and the entire world economy is falling apart. Everything's, the whole deck's been re reshuffled. But I'm not getting into eschatology right now. I'm just saying there's a link between the creation groaning and human sin. And I think that's what Paul's talking about here in Romans chapter 8. Paul says that God has planned the full liberation of the creation in the pattern of the sons of God. They're tied together. They're tied together. The history of redemption on earth is linked in eschatological language to the stars, the sun and the moon. All of those things were, were created to give light to the earth. So I'm not refuting Copernicus here. I'm not saying that the sun is revolving around the earth. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying in terms of why the sun exists at all, it's because of earth. Does that make sense? Why the stars exist at all is to give light to the earth. And when events in earth's history end, they're going to fall to the, uh, to the ground like ripe figs, it says in Revelation 6. All right. So, and then they'll make room for a new heaven, new earth that's coming. So there's a, there's a groaning and a waiting and a decay and a bondage on the present creation, including disease, including futility, all of that. That's what is going on. And he says that creation, all of creation is groaning as in the pains of childbirth. What does that mean? Why that analogy, as in the pains of childbirth? Well, that's it. That's both sides of the equation, isn't it? Very painful, but resulting in something good. 
this is what Jesus said about his own crucifixion. You know, a woman in labor gives, is filled with pain until the child comes. But when the child comes, she forgets her pain, remember? So it will be with you. You will grieve while the world rejoices, but afterward you will see me and then no one will take away your joy. He's likening it to his own resurrection. Paul here likens it effectively to the resurrection of the earth and the cosmos. The earth and the cosmos are gonna come through into a new heaven, new earth, and the former pain will be forgotten by comparison. That's what he's saying. It's groaning as in the pains of childbirth, but it is coming. By the way, what does this have to do with our battle against sin? How does, how does the fact that creation is groaning and bondage to decay relate to our battle with sin? We also are groaning. Well, let's take, for example, um, a godly brother or sister that is battling cancer and the cancer is intensely painful day after day after day. Are they being tempted to sin through that? Is there any temptation to sin? What would it be? Day after day after day after day of intense physical pain. How is that a tempting situation? Cursing God. God is not answering prayer. He's not taking them out of the world. They're still alive. He's not healing them. He's not minimizing their pain. They're just walking through it. It's very tempting. It's tempting to despair. It's tempting to, as you said, curse God, to blame God, etc. It's a tempting situation. And even if you're totally physically healthy, but you're battling lust, you're battling the drives of the flesh and all that, that's part of this whole futility thing as well. It's woven into our battle against sin. And so he's talking about that. Now, what is the redemption of the body in verse 23? The redemption of the body. Yeah, redemption is, you know, not exactly the same as, but it's salvation, similar. It's bought with a price. Salvation that's bought with a price or liberation. Specifically, redemption would be liberation at the payment of a price, right? Our bodies are in bondage to decay. We're going to be set free, liberated. Who paid the price? We know who paid the price, Jesus. So the redemption of the body equals the resurrection of our bodies, our resurrection bodies, that we will have glorious resurrection bodies, which are described in 1 Corinthians 15, 42 to 44. The body that's sown is sown, it's perishable, it's raised imperishable. It is sown in weakness, it's raised in power. It's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. So imperishable, powerful, glorious, spiritual, that's what you're getting. That's the redemption of the body, okay? That's what the creation's waiting for, and that's what's gonna happen in creation too. It's gonna be, in some sense, resurrected into a new heaven, new earth. Now, one last thing, if you look at it in verse uh, 23, it says, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruit of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for what? What does the verse say we're waiting for? Our adoption. Our adoption. Now, wait a minute. That should cause you to be a little bit surprised. I thought I was adopted. Well, this is the way I put it all together. The adoption proceedings have begun, but they've not been consummated. Yeah, and I just think you have to be honest with the verse in 23. The verse implies that our full adoption hasn't come yet. Doesn't it imply that? If you look at it, that's it. And, and our full adoption is consummated with the resurrection of the body. By the way, this incredible verse, you are my son today, I have begotten you. It's an interesting verse ascribed to Jesus and it's tied to his resurrection from the dead. It's really interesting. All right, I'm not gonna get into it. It's a complex verse. You are my son, today I've begotten you. But Paul links it, Paul and, and um, Barnabas link it in um, Acts 13 to Jesus' resurrection.
And so effectively, he is declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. And so also our adoption is consummated when we have our resurrection body. And we're waiting for that. That's what we're waiting for. We're, we're looking forward to that. And now we're at the topic of hope and we're out of time. All right. But I want to say something about hope real quick. All of this is about hope. What is hope? Hope equals assurance. Hope is a power, a powerful thing. It is it is essential to fighting sin. You've got to have, we already said this earlier tonight. If you don't have hope, you won't fight. Right? Because what is the opposite of hope? Isn't it despair? If you have despair, you won't fight. But if you are filled with hope, you're a tough opponent for Satan. So he wants to get you despairing. All of these verses in Romans 8 are to give you hope. And what is hope? It's a feeling, a sense in the heart that the future is bright based on the promises of God. Is your future bright? Oh, it's indescribably bright. It's glorious as a matter of fact. And the more you have a vibrant sense of that, the more energetic you're gonna fight sin. So that's what we're getting at is this word, hope. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.